now, time for seafood news. You're listening to the Seafood News Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Foreign Trade Data. Reduce uncertainty, minimize risks, and uncover opportunities with the only website designed exclusively for the seafood import and export community. I'm news assistant Ryan Doyle. And I'm Erna Barry seafood market reporter Lauren Castiglione. Thanks for joining us. In our top story of the day, catch limits for Bering Sea snow crabs was announced over the weekend. The 2019-2020 quota sits just over 34 million pounds, a 24% increase compared to last year's 27.5 million pound quota. The total breaks down to 30.6 million for the IFQ fishery and 3.4 million for the community development quota sector. The numbers confirm industry expectations that the quota would not continue to increase at the 50% rate it had a year ago. The ADF&G and NMFS also announced that the tanner crab season will be closed this year due to survey estimates of mature male biomass in the eastern and western Bering Sea being below thresholds required for fishery openings. The tanner closure triggers a prohibition of retaining tanners during the Bering Sea snow crab fishery. The numbers confirm industry expectations that the quota would not continue to increase at the 50% rate it had a year ago. The ADFNG and NMFS also announced that the tanner crab season will be closed this year due to survey estimates of mature male biomass in the eastern and western Bering Sea being below thresholds required for fishery openings. Bristol Bay Red King Crab season will open October 15th with a total allowable catch of 3.79 million pounds. Last season's catch was 4.3 million pounds. The fishing season will open at noon and remain open through 11.59 p.m. January 15, 2020. The 2019-2020 total allowable catch is apportioned as follows, 3.4 million pounds to the IFQ fishery and 379,000 pounds to the CDQ fishery. Meanwhile, after hearing from dozens of stakeholders, the North Pacific Fisheries Management Council moved to prioritize cutting costs while increasing observer fees a modest amount from 1.25% to 1.65%. NOAA Fisheries Observer Program has statutory authority to raise the rate to 2% and presented that option as an alternative for the council, but opposition to it was loud from those small boats already burdened with daily observer costs over $1,000. The council's motion read, The Council identifies cost efficiency as its highest priority for work on the Partial Coverage Observer Program. Immediate efforts should focus on one, pelagic trawl electronic monitoring, two, an integrated plan that combines EM short-size sampling and at-sea observer coverage, and three, optimizing the size and composition of the fixed gear observed and EM fleets. The industry also supported the fee increase, which will take effect in the next few years. Let's shift the focus now to Pebble Mine. Over a dozen groups have sued the Environmental Protection Agency. Their suits charge the agency with failure to protect Alaska fisheries, wildlife, jobs, communities, and ways of life from the proposed Pebble Mine. One lawsuit is charging the EPA with breaking the law when it withdrew a 2014 proposed determination setting out protections for Bristol Bay. Bristol Bay groups filed a related lawsuit on October 8th, and Trout Unlimited filed a suit the next day. The EPA abandoned protections for the Bristol Bay watershed in late summer, and according to reports, the decision to withdraw protections occurred after President Trump met with Alaska's Governor Mike Dunleavy in June. The litigation comes weeks after Senator Lisa Murkowski expressed concerns over the scientific and technical deficiencies in the Army Corps' draft environmental impact statement for Pebble. As a chair of a subcommittee, she supported an appropriations bill that encourages agencies to use their enforcement authorities to protect Bristol Bay if the Army Corps fails to fix the flaws and gaps in its analysis. 
Now let's move to Washington, where the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife and the Washington Sea Grant Crab Team found evidence of European green crabs in Drayton Harbor. European green crabs are globally damaging invasive species that pose a threat to Washington's economic, environmental, and cultural resources. Green crabs could negatively impact salmon recovery in the area, the Dungeness crab fishery, destruction of eelgrass beds, and the species also brings other threats to the seafood industry. The team trapped 17 green crabs during a two-day rapid response in late September, which marks the highest number of green crabs trapped in such a short period of time from any one area along Washington's inland shoreline. Green crabs pose a specific threat to the Dungeness crab because they are more aggressive than their native counterparts. While European green crabs don't grow as big, the young Dungeness require estuarine habitats to grow to commercial size. The Washington Commercial Dungeness Crab Fishery brings in between $35 and $55 million annually. In 2017, crabbers landed about 19.5 million pounds for a total value of 64 million. Since 2016, European green crabs have been found at 12 locations along Washington's inland shoreline. WDFW encourages the public to keep a lookout for European green crabs. People can familiarize themselves with how to identify the species and distinguish it from similar native species on Washington Sea Grant's crab identification website. Next up, the Marine Stewardship Council released its annual report displaying a boost in the supply and demand for sustainable seafood. The report also highlighted the company's short-term and long-term goals. MSC's annual report was titled, Working Together for Thriving Oceans. MSC's report showed an overall improvement in efforts to ensure seafood supplies and marine ecosystems are sustainable for years to come. It showed an increased number of MSC certified products that are on the shelves as well. For the first time ever, sales of seafood with the blue MSC label reached 1 million tons per year, backed by a 34% boost in MSC catch over the last five years. The MSC label also appears to be making an impact on consumers. The council said that shoppers spent almost $10 billion per year on MSC-labeled seafood. Sales remain strong in Northern Europe, Germany, the Netherlands, and the UK. It also saw growth in Italy, China, and Japan. Consumer understanding of the label increased by 5% from 2016 to 2018 as well. Over the past five years, 165 fisheries have achieved MSC certification. As consumers become more inclined to purchase sustainably sourced foods, fisheries are responding. The total certified catch jumped by 3 million over the same time period. Uh, and finally, let's wrap up our show with a few things we wanted to highlight as National Seafood Month rolls on. First up, a team of U.S. and Canadian researchers has created a tool that will help stakeholders from fishermen to policymakers make decisions on the future of lobster fisheries in Canada and Nova Scotia as climate change takes place. American lobster is one of Canada's most valuable fisheries. According to NOAA, it contributes 44% of the total commercial value of all fisheries in the Atlantic Canada region in 2016. With landings trending upwards in the area, the lobster fishery is integral for many communities along the coast. Researchers created a pair of climate change vulnerability indices, one focused on the communities along the coast and one for the lobster in Nova Scotia. The Coastal Index put a number on each lobster management area to determine its potential risk to the climate. Various factors went into the rating, including economic dependence on lobster, population, and more. The Vulnerability Index put a number on the risks of offshore lobster habitats had to ocean warming and its impact on zooplankton, a top prey for lobster. The new tools could help prep the region for climate change and what it will do to the fisheries in the region. It will help policymakers and managers to adjust quotas and regulations and could help assist fishermen to diversify their catches. And then next up, we found an interesting fun fact today. Lauren pointed this out as well. And um, 
fun and important. And important. Fun yes. and important. Very important. Um, <laughs> more and so important than yes, fun. <laughs> more, yes. Yes. Definitely important. Uh, the Seafood Nutrition Partnership discussed an interesting finding regarding seafood consumption and depression. According to multiple studies, people who regularly eat fish are 20% less likely than their peers to have depression. Dozens of studies that have evaluated over 20,000 cases of depression have shown that eating two to three servings of fish per week or taking omega-3 fish oil supplements reduces the risks of major depression. The American Psychiatric Association endorsed the, that fatty acids in fish are an effective portion of depression treatment. The gist of the findings pretty much is that diet is an extremely important aspect of mental health and choosing healthy options like fish uh, to be at the center of your plate could play a role in keeping mental health in check. And I definitely think that's true. I mean, just eating better. Yes, better 100%. And, you know, getting into that 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 trend and that that habit of eating well does help, Right. you know, get, get you through your day. Um, As yeah. I... Ate my second Kit Kat of yes, the, of the and day. as we went to an Italian restaurant, had some had, had a, you know not so much a healthy lunch, but we were celebrating. So. But with that news, I will leave you with an easy seafood recipe. So last night was back to school night for my two and a half year old, a very serious can't miss event. <laughs> so I had limited time to make dinner, but I knew I had frozen shrimp in the freezer. Uh, I had avocados on hands that were kind of on their last leg to turning on me. Um, I always have packets of frozen rice, you know, from Trader Joe's in the freezer and canned goods in the pantry. So I grabbed some corn, some black beans, and luckily our temps haven't dropped too low at night. So my garden is still going pretty strong. I pulled some cilantro, some tomatoes. I honestly never felt more like a domestic badass than pulling <laughs> all that together so quickly. So while the shrimp was thawing, I prepped all my ingredients. I let the shrimp marinate for about five minutes um, in honey, cumin, little cayenne pepper, salt, and chopped garlic. Then I threw that all on an iron skillet for a few minutes and dumped everything into a bowl and voila. It was super easy. It was delicious. Obviously, if I had more time, I would have grilled the shrimp, grilled the corn, threw in some green onions, maybe made a cilantro lime sauce with some Greek yogurt to drizzle on top. But despite that, you know, putting together everything in a rush, it was delicious. It was satisfying. So when you think of seafood, it doesn't have to be you know, this long, like drawn out recipe that you're creating, it can be, you know, something super easy uh, as well. So, you know, let's all get a start on this seasonal depression and cook up some seafood. <laughs> that sounds absolutely delicious. Yes. That, that sounded really good. And that about does it for us. Once again, this episode was brought to you by Foreign Trade Data. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye-bye. <laughs>